Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Renee and Alexander Bohm Memorial Lecture, um, where we will hear Dr. Tsvinovic speak on the speak on the topic of does Jewish law recognize righteousness. Uh, Dr. Tsvinovic is the Ab Abraham's Jewish Thought and Culture Professor of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, and his research focuses on early rabbinic li literature and in er and early Jewish liturgical poetry. This is part of our of our Fallsman programming at Grisha, and we're glad to have have Dr. Novik here as a guest lecturer. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Uh, should I just um, get started then? Um, I please do. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to be sharing a screen with you. Uh, let's see if that technology will work. Okay, and um, okay, so hopefully you can see this PowerPoint. Uh, and no, uh, just learning raised a hand. So I don't know if that was part of just learning. Okay. <laughs> right. But that does uh, remind me to mention that you should feel free to stop me at any point, ask questions, make comments, and ideally also, in fact, use that hand, that yellow hand, uh, because then it comes to my attention via Zoom. Uh, whereas if you're simply raising a hand, then I might not see it because I can't see all of the video boxes. All right. Okay. So does Jewish law recognize righteousness? That's a little bit of an obscure question. Uh, and um, what I want to do is first kind of clarify the question, clarify the dilemma, that I want to examine in the lecture and then try to work toward uh, presenting a, uh, a solution or one of a set of solutions to it. All right, so uh, well, I wanna frame the, the problem, the dilemma by reflecting on a general question in the study of early rabbinic law and, and my focus, the focus of my, of my research, one of the foci of my research has been the structure of early rabbinic law, and I'll be making references to some of that research as we go, and then to zero in on the question of righteousness. So I've titled this slide, Law Versus Ethics in Rabbinic Judaism. And the verses here is the key thing. What I want to be kind of setting forward here is the existence of an apparent tension between law and ethics in rabbinic Judaism. Um, so, and so I'll, I'll, I'll start with this question of normative structure. So normativity, meaning normativity is the, the, the way in which we speak about um, how one ought to behave. Uh, and there are different ways of speaking about how one ought to behave. A law-like normativity, when we're speaking about how one ought to behave within the framework of law, or within the framework of an ethics that is indebted to the rhetoric of law, then we're speaking about categories like must, must not, may, right? You must, you must do X, you may not do X, you may, do, do, uh, you may, you, you may not do Y, you may do Z, etc. That's a law-like normative structure. And then alongside that, we have normative structures that I'm calling here virtue-like, that, um, um, indicate what one should do, uh, that describe the virtues, justice, courage, uh, things like that, that um, involve character, either in the sense of you know, speaking about someone of, as having good character or having positive characteristics, or can speak about what are positive characteristics, what are negative characteristics. Uh, one can think about exemplars uh, or the idea right, of imitating models or, or of avoiding um, uh, negative, um, uh, negative models or um, anti-models, as it were. So this is one way of categorizing uh, or of speaking about law versus ethics. Uh, there are two different sets of ways of talking about one, what one ought to do. Uh, and uh, we often kind of find these, at least at first glance, attention in the basic structure of rabbinic law. So when we speak about halacha, we can speak about din, and then lifnim uh, mishurat what the law is, and then what is 
uh, within the bound of the law, uh, whatever uh, defining the term is, uh, is a challenge, uh, but it describes acts that are not commanded, but, uh, but what one ought nevertheless to do. Uh, and these are um, kind of two separate categories, um, and that there's that boundary between them, the din and the lifnimi shurat hadin. Uh, or we can think about the structure of the Mishnah, um, the foundational work of rabbinic law, where pretty much every tractate other than one uses the basic rhetoric, the basic categories of a law-like normativity, must, may, may not, right? asur, mutar, chayav, um, and then one has Pirkei Avot, uh, which uh, doesn't um, employ those categories. Uh, and right, it's often translated as the ethics of the fathers. Um, one marker of the difference between them is that the negation that's used in the Mishnah when you're speaking about law is lo. Uh, right? um, um, ben between the paragraph of Vayomer, the last paragraph of the Shema, and then the following paragraph of Emet Yatsiv, Lo Yafsik, one should not, one, or one may not stop, one may not pause, Lo, but that's characteristic. Whereas in Pirkei Avot, the characteristic negation is Al. Al tifrosh min hatzibur. Do not separate from the tzibur. Al tadin et chaverach ad shetagil komo. Don't judge your neighbor until you've uh, come to his place. So al is the characteristic negation. And that's the negation that's characteristic of good counsel, uh, the should. Um, you'll find it also in, in what's called the biblical wisdom literature, Proverbs, etc. Um, so the, the, the point uh, of re reviewing these categories, well-known categories, is just to establish that there is a, sort of a fundamental tension within the rabbinic tradition between um, law and ethics, uh, where they are, they are both uh, kind of conveyed within the rabbinic normative system writ large, um, and yet uh, uh, have their separate domains, the Mishnah as a whole, and so the question that I, I've, I've, I've been asking in my research, um, uh, really kind of starting with my dissertation and then kind of on and off uh, amidst other, other inquiries, um, is to what extent do we find bridge categories? Categories within halacha, within halachic discourse, um, that nevertheless incorporate gesture toward um, ethics. Uh, or uh, a normativity that is centered in virtue, in character, in exemplars. Um, so what we could call bridge concepts that complicate this dichotomy and blur this dichotomy between law and ethics. Uh, so right, the law can, does the, if we're, if we're kind of standing within the Arba, uh, uh, you know, the Arba Amot HaBalacha, within the four cubits of the law, do we need to, conceive of ethics simply as kind of that which is beyond law, uh, or is there within legal, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the discourse of law and halakha itself, um, an incorporation of these other kinds of uh, uh, normative, uh, or these features of other kinds of normativity. Um, so this is the way, uh, the, this, this talk is based on a forthcoming paper, and this is the way I put it in that paper. Law prescribes what one must do, must not do and may do. It does not as, as such describe or model what one should do, right? We don't look to the law to model what we should do. The law is kind of like a floor, um, but that's not what you should do. You ought to go beyond it. At least at first glance, the law seems capable of processing excellence, perfection, holiness only as excess, as that which is beyond what the law demands. And from the opposite perspective, to celebrate virtue and perfection seems inevitably to marginalize the law as, second, as a second best or to encourage allegoresis, allegorical interpretation of it. Uh, all right, and this is the problem that you encounter when you, right, when you, uh, when you run into uh, kind of a, um, a system like Philo's, an um, ancient Jewish philosopher who kind of is very much centered in a, in a, in a Greek ethic of perfection, of virtue, um, and ends up attributing kind of only chiefly allegorical value to the law, um, but not the value of the law as commanding uh, what one may or may not or must do. So that's the dilemma. And the solution um, or the nuance would lie in the identification of bridge concepts, categories within the halakha 
that gesture also toward um, an idea of perfection, uh, of excellence, of virtue. And so what are some of those bridge concepts? So mitzvah, I think is one, right? Mitzvah, of course, is the term for commandment. And it's in some sense, the, the very foundation of the law, right? That Rambam's Mishneh Torah uh, is, uh, or, or, or is organized in part around the identification of different commandments and then the classification into different categories. Um, but on the other hand, we have a, a usage of the word mitzvah where mitzvah signifies precisely what you don't need to do, but you ought to do. Right, it's a mitzvah. Right, you don't need to do it, but it's a mitzvah to do. Right, and and that, that that's a, a kind of you know in our modern discourse about mitzvah. But that that usage has roots within uh, the earliest stratum of uh, of Tanaitic halacha. Uh, so mitzvah is this category that's that that is an actually an interesting bridge category uh, between a uh, between the law uh, or something that blurs the boundary between the legal and the ethical, or between a discourse of may, may not, and must, and a discourse of perfection, uh, the ideal, um, right, whereas the law is simply the floor. Ritual is another category where that, that, incorpor that incorporates within itself a kind of legal dimension, but then also a, a kind of um, demand of perfection, um, of uh, of uh, even even an, an aesthetic um, aesthetics is also kind of associated with with virtue um, um, making of oneself or creating a, a, a character fashioning character There's, there are aspects of aesthetic in the rhetoric of perfection and character that you don't have in law and so in ritual also you have a yatsaya de chovato one has fulfilled his obligation some basic steps that you need in order to fulfill your obligation and there's the obligatory there's the law and yet there is also a lechatkila um, what you ought to do from the first in other words some kind of perfect way of achieving this ritual uh, and so it's a concept that is halachic right we have all sorts of halachic rituals obviously um, many of them associated with with uh, and the Beit Hamikdash but certainly many of them which survived today the seder tefillah etc um, and there is a yatsayadei chavato kind of a legal element to it of chova what one must do uh, but then also within that very category uh, a sense of uh, how to do uh, being perfect um, so that's another um, another bridge concept. A third, um, and those are two, those first two are ones that I, uh, that I um, explore in that book, What is Good and What God Demands, and I have pictured over here. A third is uh, one that I explored in a contribution to that, this other volume that's depicted here, Character, New Directions from Philosophy, Psychology, and Theology. Um, I, I contributed there an article on etiquette in rabbinic, uh, in, uh, rabbinic law. And etiquette is a really, really interesting category, right? Etiquette is, uh, you know, to some extent, it's, it's, it's this kind of the slightest sort of normative things. It's just politeness. On the, on the, on the other hand, um, people get, get quite upset about bre uh, breaches of etiquette, uh, and it can be quite, uh, uh, quite compelling, uh, have, a, have, a, have a, a, a really powerful normative force. Uh, and etiquette is very interesting because it's rule bound, right? There are rules of etiquette. We speak about rules of etiquette. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's unlike the law, Etiquette makes a lot of use of exemplars, uh, and um, in order, in order to, to to know what good etiquette is, you imitate others, and you can find that in in rabbinic discussions. Rabbinic discussions of etiquette uh, very frequently advert to models, so they say, you know, look at Rabbi Yochanan and how Rabbi Yochanan puts on his shoes, uh, that that sort of thing, um, and uh, and so etiquette is also a category that sort of blurs the boundary between law and uh, a kind of ethic of perfection. This is uh, obviously not, not, not something that we can enter into detail now, because this, is, because this is all by way of background to the question of the tzaddik uh, or the righteous person or righteousness. And what I want to be arguing essentially is that the category of the tzaddik, the righteous person is another one of these bridge categories. Another one of these ways, and I guess another way to put it is, another one of these ways in which halacha shows itself to be not simply a floor and not simply law in the you know, modern, say American sense of it or, or Western sense of it, um, um, of rules that, must, that one must abide by, uh, but a pathway to perfection. Uh, and that one who observes the law precisely because they observe the law 
and not going beyond it, but precisely because they observe the law can become perfect. Uh, and that's, that's kind of, so that, that's another way of, of expressing this, the possibility of, this, of these bridge concepts, these concepts that enable us to see the law, not simply as the floor that is then exceeded by an ethics of perfection or holiness, uh, but actually a vehicle through which one achieves perfection. All right, so to the, to the righteous individual, the tzaddik. So um, the tzaddik is obviously a category that the rabbis don't invent. Uh, they inherit the category of the tzaddik from the Bible. And in the Bible, there are two major usages um, of the word of the category tzaddik. One is the one that, that we're most familiar with and that we uh, invoke when we translate tzaddik as righteous. Uh, it is the, the, the sense of righteousness, and as opposed to the rasha, who is wicked, the tzaddik and the rasha. Uh, and then there's also a forensic sense, uh, the sense of innocence, uh, forensic meaning a courtroom sense, uh, right? What one can speak within the context of judicial procedure of a tzaddik and a rasha, where tzaddik is an innocent person or a person who is found innocent, a person who is acquitted, um, and the rasha, the guilty person. But this is not a, this is not a character. Um, statement. This is a statement about the particular facts at hand and the particular case at hand. All right, so that's the biblical background. And now uh, we'll come to the rabbinic background. So the rabbis uh, preserve this basic sense of the tzaddik as righteous. And maybe let's have a look at this first text, which is the, uh, as an example. Um, so this is from Tosefta Sota. When the righteous come into the world, goodness enters the world. And punishment, disaster, is removed from the world. When they are when they are, when they pass on, and when they exit the world, then uh, punishment comes to the world, and good is removed from the world. And then in the continuation, I'm skipping over something in the middle. And not only do the righteous suspend for the world, meaning suspend punishment while they are alive, alone, but even in their death, as it says, uh, etc. And it was after seven days, then the waters of the flood uh, came upon the land. So that this is obviously in the story of Noah. So what's the nature of those seven days? Why, why, why seven days until the water appeared? These are the seven days of mourning for Metushelach, the righteous, uh, that prevented the disaster, prevented punishment from coming to the world. So even in his death, Metushelach uh, was able to forestall the arrival of the flood uh, for the seven days uh, of, his, uh, of his mourning. All right, so this is a very typical usage of, uh, of tzaddik in the sense of righteous, uh, or hatzadikim ba'in la'olam, and then they, uh, um, uh, and then they benefit the world in virtue of their presence. So that's the typical usage. Um, now when it comes to the forensic usage, right? So the sense of tzaddik in the sense of innocent, uh, in innocent, that is to say, the subject of a finding of innocence in court, that falls out in rabbinic literature. You only essentially find that usage when they are interpreting a verse that uses tzaddik in that way. They recognize that the Bible uses it in that way, um, but they don't use it themselves in that way. Uh, and so here's just an example. Um, from Chiltid Rabbi Ishmael, a Tanaitic commentary in the book of Exodus. So if a person leaves the court in, um, innocent, there was a finding of innocence, but then after he leaves the court, they, they, uh, they discover new grounds uh, for conviction. Right? I might think he will be guilty, he should be counted guilty. They should bring him back to court and find him guilty. Um, Therefore, it's, uh, hence the verse says, do not kill a tzaddik, do not kill an, uh, an innocent person. If he's been found innocent, then that finding needs to remain. This is, in other words, a prohibition against double jeopardy. Once the person has been tried and found innocent, he cannot be tried again on the same charge. Uh, and so here they are recognizing this usage of tzaddik in the sense of innocent, but 
Um, but that's the only context in which you find tzaddik being used in rabbinic halacha. In other words, um, when tzaddik is not really used in halacha in general, the category of tzaddik isn't uh, a category in halachic discourse. There are no halachot. There are no laws that govern tzaddikim. There are no laws that are about uh, tzaddikim. Um, right, the only way in which tzaddik, uh, right, the law doesn't judge a person on whether they are a tzaddik or not. They retain this usage of tzaddik in the sense of innocent, or they know of this biblical usage, and so that figures in halacha, but there is no halacha that turns on the question of whether this person is a tzaddik or not. The category is not recognized by the law. Um, there is one possible exception. There is one exception. It's a very, very interesting, uh, very, very interesting exception, which uh, it's the case of the turned city, right? What happens if uh, this is in the Halachan Devarim? What happens if a city uh, has been turned toward idolatry? And um, the so the entire city uh, is now worshiping idolatry. Um, and so the entire city is to be destroyed. Um, and so the rabbis kind of confront this, this dilemma, you know, uh, is, is this in fact the, the halacha that the entire city even, um, um, right, well, when, well, under what circumstances does the, is the entire city destroyed? Are those who are innocent uh, destroyed too or to be killed also? Um, and, um, and then what happens also to the property? So lots of complicated halachot here, but here's one example of ways of, of one case where, um, where it matters whether one is righteous. So the property of the righteous within the city is destroyed, outside of it, it escapes. In other words, if, if, if there's a righteous inhabitant of the city or an innocent inhabitant of the city, um, if he uh, has property located within the city, then it is destroyed as part of the general destruction of the city. But if his property is located outside of the city, then not. Whereas for the wicked, that is to say, those who have worshipped idolatry, then whether um, whether they are inside or outside of the whether their property is inside or outside of the city, it is destroyed. So here, uh, the category of tzaddikim and rishaim are being used, even though the law itself in the Bible. The law of the turn city doesn't have to do, does, doesn't mention sadikim doesn't mention rishaim, uh, and so why exactly the words sadikim and rishaim are being used here to describe innocent and guilty, um, when the Bible itself doesn't use these terms in this context is a question. I think for the sake of time, I'll kind of put a pin in that, and then maybe we can come back to that if there is time. Uh, but in general, um, to go back to the to that uh, opening slide, in general that forensic usage is. Um, is not employed in uh, in rabbinic literature, and in rabbinic literature, tzaddik in general means simply a righteous person, uh, and it's not used in halacha. Um, right, halacha, halachot, right, generally kind of they don't turn on. The, there are no laws that um, that differ um, whether on um, or that turn on the question of whether a person is righteous or not. Um, all right, so now that's all to set up this, these passages. And these are two well-known passages, but I think th there is what to learn from them, uh, something new to learn from them about the, the nature of the tzaddik in rabbinic thought. Uh, and in particular, the possible role of tzaddik as a bridge concept in the way that I was introducing earlier. So this passage is less well-known than, than the one that we'll get to in a second. Uh, but this is a passage that describes the judgment day, presumably you know, the final judgment. It's from Tosefta Sanhedrin, Beit Shammai Omrim. Beit Shammai says, Shalosh kitotein. There are three groups. Achat l'chaye olam, ve'achat l'cherafot l'dera'on olam. So one for, uh, for eternal life, and one for reproaches for eternal abomination. These are allusions to a verse in the book of Daniel, uh, Sefer Daniel. So who are those who are for eternal life? The tzaddikim gemurim, the utterly righteous people. And then who are those who are destined for, it, for reproaches for eternal abomination? Uh, right, one, one goes under the name uh, hellfire in other contexts. Um, Elu rishaim gemurim, these are the utterly wicked. 
shkulin shebahen. And then the third group, what's the third group? The equipoise, the ones uh, who are weighted kind of where the scales are equal. Yordin ligehinom, umitzav tzifimba, ba'olin hemena, umitrapin. They descend to Gehenna uh, and they are singed there and then they rise from it and are healed. This is a verse in Zechariah. Uh, I shall bring a third through the fire. Um, all right, so here we have the, the, this idea of three groups uh, for, um, uh, for the final judgment. Tzadikin gemurim, utterly righteous people. Rishayin gemurim, utterly wicked people. And then the shkulin, uh, the, the equally weighted people, the equipoised people, the people in the middle. Um, all right, and so, so this is one usage of tzaddik that I want to think about. Um, and then the other one, uh, the better well-known one, and these are cited, one, these two sources are cited one after the other in the Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud in Rosh Hashanah. Uh, but the other one is about the annual judgment, the, the, judgment, of, the, the judgment of Rosh Hashanah. Uh, and there too, and almost, uh, I, th I think it's quite likely that uh, this, this, famous, uh, this famous teaching about three groups of people uh, in judgment for Rosh Hashanah and Yom, uh, Yom Kippurim uh, is actually based on uh, this statement, this earlier statement attributed to the House of Shammai about three groups of people in the final judgment. And then the annual judgment and the idea of these three groups is modeled on um, the final judgment. In any case, this passage from Yerushalmi Rosh Hashanah in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, it didn't cite the whole passage uh, because I, I take it to be familiar enough, uh, but it describes three records, Pinaxim, or Pinkasim, uh, three pinaxes, um, that, that of the utterly righteous, the tzaddikim gemurim, the utterly wicked, the rishayim gemurim, and then the middling. In this case, it's called the middling, the benoniim, and then the utterly righteous and the utterly wicked receive their judgments on the new year. And whereas the middling, they're given the 10 days of repentance, the aserite mechuva, and then on the day of atonement, they are written either with the tzaddikim or with the rishayim, depending on what they do during those 10 days. All right, so my question is, what is the um, what is the usage of um, of tzaddik in this in these sources? Um, right, who are the righteous here? Um, right, so we saw in the, the these rabbinic texts they can speak of these kind of heroically righteous individuals like Metushelach, when tzaddikim come to the world, then tova uh, ba'ala olam, good comes to the world, and pur anut mistaleket. Uh, punishment is taken away. And like Metushelach, even in his death, the flood is postponed, the destruction of the entire world is postponed for seven days because of mourning over Metushelach. Uh, so we have that model of the righteous. And then we have tzaddik in the sense of innocent, which is not used productively in rabbinic literature. It's used mainly, again, in these exegetical contexts where the Bible is speaking about innocent people. But who are the righteous in this uh, in these texts, in these two texts about the final judgment um, and the annual judgment day. What conception, what, what, what is the category, what is the conception of the category of tzaddik that uh, comes through in these texts? Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a puzzle over here uh, because, um, right, it's, it's the category doesn't, um, it certainly encompasses a figure like Metushelach. It's, it certainly encompass, encompasses a, like a heroically righteous figure like Metushelach, um, but it doesn't only encompass Metushelach, right? It's a category that extends um, downward um, even to those who are uh, just slightly above average, uh, slightly above the status of Benoniim. Um, and it doesn't only uh, indicate uh, the in innocent, um, because innocence, it's, to some extent, that interpretation of tzaddik as innocent seems to be the appropriate one in this context because we're talking about judgment, right? And judgments is a case where you have acquittal or a finding of guilt, innocence or guilt, and it's binary. But on the other hand, uh, that, that meaning of tzaddik as innocent is not one that can be modified adjectivally. 
right? You don't speak of someone who is utterly innocent. I mean, we have a sense of innocence, maybe of like naivete or like childlike innocence, and then you can kind of modify it adject adjectivally, like with childlike or utter. Um, but uh, but innocence in the forensic sense of a finding of innocence is not subject to adjectival modification. Um, and so one can't speak of tzaddik gamur if tzaddik over here means innocent. And so on the one hand, the the, the category can't refer only to um, you know the righteous in the sense of you know the, the sort of righteous people where and when they enter the world good comes into the world because it extends downward even to the someone who is just above benoni or shakul uh, and then on the other hand it can't refer it can't indicate simply innocence because uh, then it 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 it, uh, it, it uh, the the idea of modifying that to with, with the adjective gamur utter utterly righteous utterly innocent wouldn't make sense and so in short what we seem to have here is a synthesis of um, of these two categories that produces really something new uh, which we could call um, the scalar tzaddik right a sc scalar in the sense of a scale right or a spectrum uh, where the category of tzaddik is encompassing really everyone uh, who is uh, everyone from the slightly better than average all the way to the heroic tzaddik, uh, the figure like Metushelach, who is, um, um, yeah, the, the sort of individual who, uh, who can influence and impact the very fate of the world theologically. Uh, and this idea of, of tzaddik is a kind of a scalar category encompassing many, uh, many sorts of people uh, and many gradations of individuals is something that you find at many points in rabbinic literature. Um, I cite here uh, on this slide, Sifrei Deuteronomy, the Tanaitic commentary on Sefer Dvarim. Sheva um, Kitot, this is just an excerpt from it, obviously. Sheva Kitot Tzadikim Began Eden, Zo There are seven groups of the righteous in the Garden of Eden, this one above that one in ranks. And then there are other rabbinic passages that uh, describe even more Kitot, uh, even more uh, groups of righteous individuals. There's even one rabbinic passage that interestingly speaks of tzaddikim gemurin on the one hand, utterly righteous people, and then tzaddikim benoniim, uh, average righteous people. That's not a phrase that occurs very often in rabbinic literature. I think it only occurs once in Vayikra Rabbah, uh, but happy to hear um, uh, other thoughts. Oh, I see, by the way. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, it just it occurred to me to uh, to check this chat. Um, so let's see, um, well, okay. Well, so let me just wrap, wrap up this sentence and then I'll check the chat. So um, for questions, but you should also, again, feel free to raise hands, the yellow hands, ideally, with questions. So, right, so, so this category then of the, of the scalar tzaddik, of this category that encompasses um, everything from just above average all the way to the heroically righteous, right, is something then uh, that we see emerging uh, in rabbinic literature and to which uh, a number of, of sources are uh, devoted. Oh, and I see, I guess, that question of uh, Azi Orbach about a definition of tzaddik as one whose good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, right, is essentially this one that we're finding in these, um, in these texts about judgment. Um, but, but it's important to note that that, uh, that, that category uh, extends all the way up to um, right, the utterly righteous. Uh, so Kayla, you've got a hand. Yes, I just want to highlight a question from the Facebook live chat. Oh, okay. Um, we, we, from a Mr. Lawrence Kaplan, he uh, made a comment um, that Maimonides exposed an ethics of perfection and yet rejected allegor allegorization of the law. And for Maimonides, obedience is in service of virtue. Uh, okay, you're right, right, right. So yeah, so I mentioned Philo um, as someone whose uh, whose deployment of uh, an ethics of perfection and of virtue led him toward allegoresis, and it's kind of the um, um, the obstacle that a kind of philosophical approach to uh, a philosophical approach or a virtue uh, or kind of a virtue-centered approach to um, uh, normativity has to confront within the rabbinic framework. How do you end up um, retaining the force of the law as law? Uh, and so, right, so, so Maimonides, uh, Maimonides 
uh, does manage to find a place for it. I mean, uh, yes, there's a virtue of obedience. Maimonides also speaks in the guide of the perplexed as the of the um, of the law as a um, um, yeah as a, a kind of a, a, tra a training ground for um, a contemplation or an opportunity within within which to kind of um, cultivate um, a, a contemplation of God. Uh, and so, yeah, so what one can one can uh, one can do that. It's yeah. There are different strategies toward accomplishing it. So that's uh, that's important to note. Uh, it's not it's not a, a trap that uh, everyone will necessarily fall into. Uh, but it's a, a trap that uh, anyone who is kind of following that path is almost inevitably aware of. Great. Um, okay. Um, so let. Um, okay. So to to kind of complete this argument for the idea of the tzaddik as a bridge concept, uh, it's important at this point to bring in the chassid, right? So if we're talking about, it's interesting to think about kind of major, um, major uh, kind of figures or, or types within rabbinic thought. Uh, so Gershon Sholem has a, um, an essay, a well-known essay about um, different types of Jewish piety, and he identifies the tzaddik and the chassid and the uh, the Talmud Chacham, the sage, as paradigms of of Jewish piety. Uh, there are rabbinic texts that lay that put that put these side by side: the tzaddik, the chassid, the Talmud Chacham, also the tzanua, uh, though that's a figure that um, um, doesn't uh, doesn't come up as as, as often. Uh, but the tzaddik and the chassid are in particular. Uh, productive to think about together. Um, and I want to kind of, because it, right, the, the, this is a, a kind of a basic insight of structural linguistics, uh, that nothing within a system of signification, nothing means by itself. Things mean by virtue of contrast to other, uh, to other signs within the system. And so to an important extent, the significance of the tzaddik, what the tzaddik means within, within uh, rabbinic thought, uh, depends in part on the way in which it's playing off, the figure of the tzaddik is playing off the figure of the chassid. And I want to, and so the chassid, the pious person, um, holy person. Uh, so obviously plenty of literature on the chassid. The, the chassid, of course, is most familiar to us from its, uh, from the, the, uh, the, the social circles um, that assign it a particular signification in the 18th century and forward, but then there are also chassid Ashkenaz in the medieval period. Um, and, uh, and other kind of usages of this category, uh, Hasidayo, all the way back in uh, the Maccabean period. Uh, we're talking about the Hasid of classical rabbinic literature. And I want to know two things about the, that distinguish the Tzaddik from the Hasid. The first is that the Hasid is a real social type in a way that the Tzaddik is not. And what do I mean by that? Well, one thing that that, what one, implication of that, or one evidence for this distinction, is the fact that one can tell stories about a chassid. Um, there are certain, you, there are, the, the chassid is a clear enough, distinctive enough character that you can tell story, that you can use a chassid as a character in a story, because people, that, that will generate expectations, right? It's like in a genre, like a, the rules of a genre, um, generate expectations, and then the author can work off of those expectations. And you can do that with a chassid because the chassid is a defined enough social type. And so you can have stories, ma'aseb chassid achad, a story concerning a certain chassid. And you never have a story that begins with ma'aseb tzadik achad, a story concerning a certain righteous person. And so this is a, a nice story uh, that, uh, yeah, maybe I'll just go through briefly. Uh, so I have a, a little time. Ma'aseb chassid achad, uh, this is in Genesis Rabbah, Bereshit Rabbah, the Amoraic commentary on the book of Genesis uh, in connection with uh, uh, the story of Adam and Eve. Uh, a story about a, a chassid who was married to a chassida. Uh, the feminine form chassida is rare, but it does occur. Uh, just like you have the feminine form tzadeket, more commonly. Um, and they did not uh, raise children one from the other. A very, very interesting kind of symmetric usage, though there's a lot of textual issues. Uh, I'm, I'm just citing the, um, the, um, the basic text in the Theodore Albeck, Theodore Albeck edition, but there are lots of variants. Uh, we are not providing any benefit to the Holy One, blessed be he. Also a very interesting <laughs> statement. As they're right, uh, if they're not providing offspring, then they're not benefiting God. 
an even a more interesting uh, reciprocal statement. They divorced one another. Divorce is not typically a reciprocal thing in rabbinic halacha. But anyway, these are all kind of subtle details that uh, we'll have to leave to the side in, uh, in the name of kind of pursuing the, uh, our objective of distinguishing the tzaddik and the chassid. Halach zeh benasa achat uh, so this one, the Hasid went, the man went and married a wicked woman, and she turned him into a rasha. And then she, the Hasida, went and married a rasha and transformed him into a tzaddik. And thus one sees that everything is from the woman. Right. It depends, uh, the ultimate uh, kind of determinative uh, status of the couple is from the uh, from the woman. So a very, very interesting story for a lot of reasons. Uh, the particular, what, what drew me to this story in particular was the way in which the categories of Hasid and Sadiq are being used here. And the categories of Sadiq and Rasha come up in the continuation. Asa'oto, um, she, she he, uh, marries Rasha and, uh, and uh, he, she transforms him into Rasha and then vice versa with a Tzadik. So those categories come up in the continuation, but the story is about a Hasid, Ma'aseh Hasid Echad. And this is typically, you have any number of stories in rabbinic literature about a Hasid, um, a certain Hasid, but no stories about a Tzadik. Uh, and, and this is because um, evidently, the Hasid is a social type, um, a character, uh, right? um, to some extent, a character in the sense like we use like a real character, uh, kind of, but someone who uh, uh, distinctive enough, again, to, to generate narrative expectations. Um, and the, an, uh, uh, further, um, ah, uh, see the question about whether one could argue that this story has halakhic implications, that one's Jewishness is dependent on the woman, as <laughs> it is interesting, kind of whether this, uh, whether this agada, whether this narrative is uh, kind of to some extent uh, aware of uh, and building off of the halakhic, uh, uh, the halakhic rule, that, that, uh, the matriarchal principle that the status depends on the woman. It's interesting to, to think about. Um, and, but a further evidence for this distinction between Hasid and Sadiq comes from the fact that a Hasid can be used as a moniker, um, uh, or in, uh, especially in the Aramaic form, Hasida, um, in, in a, in a, so affixed to a proper name, um, whereas Sadiq is not used that way, with rare exception, like Binyamin had Sadiq, um, but, or Yosef had Sadiq. Yosef HaTzadik actually doesn't come up nearly as often as one would think in classical rabbinic literature. It comes up in very late Midrashic literature, but not in classical rabbinic literature. But in general, Tzadik is not used as a moniker that way, whereas Hasid is. So that's one important difference between them. Uh, and then the other uh, difference that I wanted to point to is the way in which they contrast differently with the middling figure, the Benoni. Right, so you'll recollect that in this famous text about the judgment of Rosh Hashanah, you have the Tzadik, uh, the Tzadikim Gumurin and the Rishayim Gumurin, and then you have the Benoni. Um, and the the difference over there, I'll just getting back to that text, there, um, there is no uh, kind of categorical difference between the Tzadik and the um, and the Benoni. Um, they're both being they're both being judged, or the these characterizations of them are both rooted in the question of how well they have observed the law. And the Tzadikim Gumurin have observed the law very well, and hence they are, you know, uh, go scot-free in judgment um, and quickly, whereas the Benonim have observed the law um, only in a middling way. That's the contrast between the Tzadik and the Benoni. Whereas the contrast that one finds between the Hasid and the Benoni is, is rather different. Uh, and this is one place in which one finds it. Arbamidot ba'adam, uh, there are four measures of a person, a famous passage in tractate of Mishnah Avot. Ha'omer shali shali v'shalach shalach zo One who says, mine is mine, yours is yours. That's the average measure. V'yesh omrim zo stom. And some say that this is the measure of Sodom. A very, very striking statement. Um, but also I better want to bracket uh, for now. Um, but the, um, that, that, that's the average measure. One who says, yours is yours, mine is mine. Um, Shali shalach shalach shali am ha'aretz. One who says mine is yours, yours is mine. That is uh, a kind of an ignoramus. Uh, why is that person 
uh, there's no, I mean, it's just kind of one throws up one's hands. What is one to do with that? <laughs> why, why would you take uh, mine and then give me yours? Shali shalach v'shalach shalach. Mine is yours, yours is yours. That's the Hasid. Shali shali v'shalach shali. Yours is mine, mine is mine. That is the Rasha. Uh, and so here, the contrast between the Hasid and the Benoni lies in the fact that the Benoni kind of holds to the, um, is, is following the, the midah benoni, this average measure, is accepting, um, one, one might say, the judgment of the law, right? The, the law which determines uh, you know, what, that, what, what is mine and what belongs to me, what belongs to you. Uh, and that is the, the middle measure, the midah benoni, uh, someone who simply sticks to the law and observes property rights. Uh, whereas the chassid is the one who exceeds that, um, acknowledges the other's rights, and then also gives of his own to the other. Uh, and so this is the, this is the, the contrast uh, between, um, uh, between Sadiq and Hasid. I note also just a question over here in the, in the chat about Judah saying that Tamar is more righteous than, than him, Sadka uh, Mimeni. Um, that uh, or yes, uh, how how one how one deals with that passage is, is a really is an interesting question. Um, uh, whether that is a righteousness instance or an innocence instance, because that is after all a, a case involving judgment. So that's a complicated one. It would be interesting to get get back to. But all right. So so but here we here we have this the, this contrast then between the tzaddik and the chassid. Um, and uh, so what I want to um, I guess argue then bring together these uh, these different strands um, or these different features of the tzaddik that we've been speaking about is that the tzaddik functions as one of those bridge concepts in rabbinic thought one of those concepts through which within the, through which halakha uh, kind of shows itself to be something other than uh, simply law in the um, in the modern you know in the, in the modern Western sense or even in the ancient Roman sense, um, but something that encompasses within itself a framework of perfection rather than simply being the floor that needs to be exceeded in order to achieve perfection. And so the idea then is that the rabbinic tzaddik, um, in the way that it's defined and in the way that it figures in opposition to the Hasid is doing that work of bridging or is doing that work of putting forth halakha as itself a path toward perfection. And how is it doing that? So in a, in a couple of ways. Uh, so in that scalar way, in the fact that the tzaddik is a category that encompasses both the tzaddikim gemurin and someone who is simply um, above uh, above average, um, and so um, right. Uh, this is the, the, the this is the the kind of the the, the the structure of the category that emerges in those passages about uh, about judgment, uh, and so it's indexed to the uh, to judgment. The category of tzaddik is indexed to judgment. Um, and to um, and to observance of the law, um, and yet it can reach the heights of the tzad, of the tzaddik amor, uh, and then also in the fact that the tzaddik is a kind of weak personality, right? If we think again, going back to those uh, those these different normative structures, right? So character is that kind of nor uh, is that um, is that um, normative category that is not really associated with law, right? Character and like modeling character, exemplars, that's not a category that has any role to play in the law. You don't look to someone in order to, uh, in order to determine uh, what the law is. Certainly the actions of a person doesn't determine what the law is other than in say a uh, totalitarian state perhaps. Um, where character is the kind of thing that's the bread and butter of, uh, of, of a virtue discourse and looking into a person who embodies uh, that virtue. And to some extent, one can't define courage unless you kind of uh, can point to a courageous person and say, this is what courage consists of. The law doesn't work that way at all. Um, and so the tzaddik 
uh, so the Hasid kind of as a character, as a strong character, you can see how the Hasid uh, kind of, the, the work that the Hasid is going to do is to reinforce the distinction between law and ethics. The Hasid is the strong character who as a character is not gonna be fitting within the contours of the law. Whereas the Tzaddik is a character in the sense that, the Tzaddik is a character in the sense that you can speak about, you know, when the Tzaddikim come to the world, good comes to the world. Um, and so you, you can, um, there, is, there is content there. Um, and yet they're not these strong characters, right? And so you can't tell stories about them. So, so precisely that kind of like fluidity or that vagueness within the category of the Tzaddik enables us, it's, it's part of the, it's an evidence of the work that it is doing to try to figure the law as a vehicle of perfection. Uh, so there's the scalarity of the tzaddik. There is the notion of the tzaddik as a kind of a weak character, a character who's not altogether a character. Um, and then there is precisely this, this distinction between the tzaddik and the chassid. And let me get to the last slide for a formulation of the way in which, um, oh, sorry, the way in which I see these working together. And this is also, again, from this forthcoming article. Uh, so the Hasid is the figure, also I'll read through this and also stop to kind of parse it. The Hasid is the figure through, through whom the rabbis give expression to the limit of the law. He is defined by contrast to the law and represents its endpoint. Right? And so you find in the Babylonian Talmud, the idea of a midat Hasidut, of a measure of Hasidut, that it's, is more or less a, a, a synonym for action lifnim mishurat adin, action in excess of the law. Uh, the Hasid in his excess, in his strong personhood, makes visible a normative structure defined by perfection. But in doing so, he reinforces the conceptual stability of the law as its own distinct normative structure. Right? And that's the tricky thing over here. Right? The tricky thing in these bridge concepts is to uh, kind of gesture outward from the law without dissolving the law into mere a propodutic, a, a kind of preparation for perfection, and one could argue that Maimonides does do that, even if he, even as he doesn't allegorize. Um, uh, but so the, the, the kind of the, 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 tricky, the trick in these bridge concepts is to uh, remain within the framework of the law, even as one uh, kind of offers a portrait of it as a framework for perfection. And so the work that the Tzaddik does, it kind of works in tandem with the Hasid in order to do this. So the Hasid kind of, reinforces uh, the idea of the law as law. Uh, and that's precisely why the Hasid is an excess of it uh, in his uh, kind of search for perfection. By contrast, the Tzaddik, and now I'm continuing in this quotation, by contrast, the Tzaddik through his scalar character, his coupling of heroic righteousness with mere survival of judgment, his weak personhood uh, blurs the boundary between the law and what lies beyond it and implicitly offers an integrated vision of the deontological and virtue elements of rabbinic normativity. Deontological being those categories of must, may, may not. Uh, and then the virtue elements are things like character and, 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 and well, virtues and exemplars. Put differently, the chassid enables the rabbis to insist that halacha really is law. Um, but law in the, in, the, in the sense of like American law, like Roman law, what you have to do, the floors, right? What everyone was expected of everyone. And the halacha really is law. Um, and therefore it can be exceeded by the chassid. So the chassid enables the rabbis to insist that halacha really is law, but through the, through the tzaddik, they make the claim that law is not just law, right? That law is in fact this vehicle for perfection. Um, all right, so, so that's, that's the argument. And I mean, it's a, this is a, it's, it's a very kind of abstract structural argument. So I, I, uh, I thank you for bearing with me as I work through it. And I'm, I'm not really totally sure, um, kind of, uh, this is by way of kind of qualification of this entire enterprise, really including, um, including, you know, this work that I've, that I've kind of been thinking about sort of from, from my, my dissertation and forward. I mean, I, I think about a lot of other things also, Piyut and also those sorts of things, but in terms of these legal questions about legal normativity. Um, um, so when you have like a category like mitzvah, which seems to bridge these two kind of normative structures or ritual, which has a yatsayadei chavato, this is what you need to do in order, to, in order for the ritual to be effective, in order for you to uh, fulfill your obligation. And then this is the way, you know, it ought to look 
when it's perfect, l'chadchila. Um, when you have a category um, like tzaddik, which is blurring in these ways, I, what I'm not altogether sure about, uh, I mean, assuming that I'm right, even as far as I go, um, what I'm not altogether sure about is uh, how, how one pins this down philosophically. Uh, is, this, is this mere kind of rhetoric um, and a, a kind of a uh, um, masking or blurring in the, in the sense of uh, uh, a kind of easing over, uh, papering over a certain kind of conceptual divide that can't really be bridged, uh, but it's but the, these are uh, attempts to hold them together at the level of rhetoric, um, or are they? Do they actually really have a, a conceptual coherence to them that really, at a philosophical level, is bridging between these normative frameworks? And I don't know. I, I have not. Um, I have not settled on on an answer to that question. I am. I am not sure. Um, yeah. Dr. Novick, is it possible to say something? Oh, please, yes, yeah, so that, that, was, that, was, that was it. Yeah. So yes, okay. please, thank you, yes. No, just thank you, thank you very much. I appreciate you raised, I think, a lot of very interesting questions. Mm -hmm. My sense is, and I'm interested in your response, my sense is that what you're suggesting is certainly true of something like Din versus Lifnim Mishurat Din. I think one can make the argument that one who keeps, the, keeps all the laws doesn't break the law, not that a law can cover all of human experience in the first place, but leaving that aside, mm. the one who keeps the law, keeping the law lends itself or leads to even going beyond the law. And as you said, which may or may not be the same thing. But what strikes me is that when you talk about the, the Hasid, and you look at the Hasidim of the Babylonian Talmud, at least, Hanina Ben Dosa. Hanina Ben Dosa is not somebody who is more strict about his observance. That's not what Khalid Mendoza is about at all, actually. It's a person that works, walks through the world in a completely different way. Right, right. He's living in a different universe. He reminds me of the rabbi in Tekoa several years ago, Benachem Fruman. Benachem mm. Fruman is not more strict, less strict. He's a guy who leaves the Yeshua with no money in his pocket, no car. He has to get the hype in two hours. He always gets there. And right, so right. People living a different way, miracles. The Khadir Bendosa is, is the, the way he lives. So yes. I don't think actually you can, I think they're completely different in terms of the Hasid type. On the mm -hmm. other hand, I think your point about bridge that that keeping the rules, which is what the Tzaddik does in contrast to the Rosh who breaks rules, yeah. that's a very important question and point that it, it actually can lead you to going beyond. Right, right. So, so the, the, yeah. Type is a different type in my view. Mm -hmm. Yeah, though that right. So that's interesting, right? Though, though I don't want to say that the tzaddik, right? Uh, I, I I don't think that the that the implication. Uh, I'll start with the comment on the tzaddik and then get back to the Hasid. I don't I don't think I, I wasn't arguing anyhow for, for the idea that the uh, figure of the tzaddik is suggesting that by observing the law one can kind of go further and be and beyond it. I, I think the the way tzaddik is figuring in rabbinic normativity is to suggest that observance of the law itself. Is a, is is a way of per, there. There is a kind of perfect observance of the law that leads to perfection. Um, so so that it's 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 the Hasid who is going beyond. But now, but that, to get to this point about the Hasid, right? It's a very very interesting idea. Benjamin Brown has an interesting uh, it's a very interesting um, article on uh, on uh, he's 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 focusing on a. Um, uh, on uh, ultra orthodoxy and uh, uh, Haredi Judaism, and uh, an interesting observation about, and this is something that has been noted in a number of contexts about a kind of um, confluence of what he calls hypernomianism and antinomianism in the figure of the Hasid or this kind of perfect person. Whereas on the one hand, there there's a hypernomianism and they are observing it to the law down to the down to the last detail with extra humrot uh, on all sides, uh, and then also an antinomianism uh, where they can feel free to violate the law. And those two things can coexist in very very interesting ways. And so I agree with you. Yeah, that that the Hasid. Um, yeah, it, it's um, when we use it in terms of lifnimi shurat hadin or even midat chasidut. We're implying here, of course, they've observed all the law, and then they're also going beyond. Um, but then, but and but then, on the other hand, there is the Hasid like Hanina Mendoza, or yeah, or um, or who's described as a Hasid and the Tosefta Taanit parallel to the Mishnah, um, who are 
ultimately what, what, what they're doing, um, I, I think they work together. I, I don't think that there's, there's an incoherence there. I think the point over here is that the very fact, so the discourse of the Hasid is suggesting that the very fact that there's something that you ought to be doing in excess of the law uh, is really telling you that there's a whole normative structure out there independent of the law and better than the law. Uh, and the law is really only a floor. Uh, so, so I think uh, the idea of the Hasid as that which exceeds the law uh, and the Hasid as the one who embodies a totally different kind of normative structure, a different way of being, are actually part of the same deal. And they're not, they're not two different types really, but that um, it's, it's precisely the fact that there is an excess to the law that signals you to the fact that law is only a kind of a small part of the normative space and not the best part of it. Um, but yeah, yeah, it, yeah. The Hasid is, is right. It's of course a fascinating category uh, unto himself uh, or herself, Hasida. Um, uh, um, but uh, but it's uh, but right. It is especially interesting then to see how how it works, kind of in, in correlation with the tzaddik. Um, okay, and I and I see. Well, so I know I see we're we're, we're at the hour. Um, maybe I just I see a question in the chat. About well, I'm not sure what you mean by that. That the has a weak personhood to Rav Lichtenstein. Going beyond the letter of the law is part of the law itself. Pirkei Avot, after all, is part of the Talmud, a halachic work. Well, right. So this is, yeah. I mean, this is all kind of very. Um, I mean, there, there are different. These are, um, I think, right. I mean, to say that going beyond the going beyond the law. Well, I, I see two separate questions here. One about the tzaddik is a weak person, and the other a weak personhood or weak personality, and the other about whether the question of the fnimi shurat hadin or going beyond the letter of the law is part of the law itself. Um, I think I think one could certainly say that. One could certainly put the point that way, uh, that going beyond the letter of the law is part of the law itself. After all, I mean, it comes up in the Gemara and uh, kind of uh, in, in one case, uh, you know, uh, with the, the, the case of uh, uh, of midat, where midat chasidut occurs. I mean, this is... Uh, it's a forensic context, and the and the defendant is told, "Do you have, you must do that?" Yes, it's an obligation to do lifni mishurat adin, and the like. Um, and so, yeah, so so there's certainly a sense of obligation, but I suppose what I'm what I'm focusing on is the way in which, even as the category of lifni mishurat hadin becomes a halacha category, it's one that acknowledges a difference between din. And and what and what is beyond it. And granted, in doing so within a halachic framework, it is already incorporating the Lifni Mishirat Adin, but the rhetoric of it is to reinforce this idea of there's a certain floor, uh, and then there is what is an, and that's the law, and then there's what's an excess of it. And granted, yes, we may kind of incorporate the excess under certain circumstances into the law itself, but to me, I see that. Uh, rhetoric as essentially reinforcing this idea of the law as floor, um, and um, and what I want to suggest, right, is that we do nevertheless find within halachic discourse concepts that are genuinely bridging and that aren't creating that binary of din and lifnimi shirat hadin or din and midat chasidut as the chasid does, a binary that reinforces the law in its limited fashion, but bridge concepts that suggest that the law itself is a field in which to cultivate perfection and that is uh, what I'm suggesting the figure of the tzaddik does. All right. Um, and sorry to jump on, I want to just highlight one more question from the Facebook live chat, um, which, um, points, which points out, um, um, Elijah rebukes Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi for not acting according to, for acting according to Din and not Midinat, not mm -hmm. Midat Chasidut. Right, right, right. Yeah, so so that's right, that's right. So yeah, the, the, the context in which these are coming up in the Gemara, right, and that's the context of Eliyahu who is kind of a little bit, uh, right, uh, distant from normative kind of halachic discourse, but you find it also in an actual court case where a rabbi is compelled to, uh, to, to give schar uh, sachir to give the wages um, even uh, even when he has suffered even when the the, the employees uh, cause him a loss and that's a kind of a conventional case so clearly it is kind of incorporated into the law as an expectation but nevertheless right I would say um, in a way that uh, maintains and, and reifies that that distinction between the law and what lies beyond it. 
Um, all right, so yeah, so I guess we, we passed the hour, so I want to uh, so I'll stop there, and uh, I think uh, um, yeah, um, I will post uh, yes to uh, the chat my email. Happy to uh, field further questions or comments. It's all very helpful. I mentioned this forthcoming article, but uh, probably can still uh, uh, insert a change or two. If uh, and so I, I will certainly welcome feedback. Uh, uh, for that reason, uh, but also because it's an abiding interest of mine. And I thank you for uh, hearing me out and for your contributions and questions uh, at, this, uh, at this late hour. All right, and thank you to Dr. Novick for, jo for joining the, us this evening. Um, and, we, and thank you to everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Gracial Live and on Facebook. And it's been, especially those who, who uh, spoke up in chat or raised their hand. Um, we are going to continue our Fallsmon programming tomorrow at 8 p.m. with the final session of Prue's Ball Atonement Cheer, as well as a new, a new series starting this Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern called A Sabbath of the Land for You, Shemitah Ethics and Jewish Philosophy with Sarah Zieger and Ra'anana Dean. You can find more information on this class as well as all of our fall programming on our website at drisha.org slash classes. Uh, thank you, Dr. Novick, and for this opportunity to learn with you. And thank you and to everyone who attended. We hope to see everyone again soon. Have a good night. Okay, good night. Thank you. Good night.